Okay, the way things usually run around here is that I give some kind of an introduction that sort of gives an overview of what I want to talk about in the particular episode that I'm doing. But uh, once again, we're doing things a little bit differently now. My co-host Rachel has picked the movie, and uh, for this one we're doing Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. And for this one, I have basically turned everything over to her. She is basically going to be in charge of, you know, the structure. Usually I write a little syllabus for um, how things are going to be done, but in this case, Rachel has. And, um, you know, most of the stuff that you expect from me is probably going to be coming from her in this instance. So I'm just going to hand things over to her and uh, she will be the play-by-play -play and I will be the color commentary. So reverse of how we usually do things. Yeah. So uh, take it away, Rachel. I have the power. I guess this is real deep dive with me. So as Ryan said earlier, we are doing The Search for Spock. I am a lifelong Star Trek fan and I have always had a really soft spot for this film since I watched it. So... It came out in 1984. It was written by Harv Bennett and directed by Leonard Nimoy. It is a sequel to the best Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. So, you know, the search for Spock already kind of has it going against it because it's a sequel to the best one. And it is also an odd-numbered Star Trek movie, which we will be talking about the Star Trek curse later. So, what are your thoughts? about the search for Spock before we really get into this. Well, one thing I want to lay out is that um, despite the fact that I'm a gigantic dork, which any random episode of this of this show will point out, and the fact that I even started this show, I'm pretty much a filthy casual when it comes to Star Trek. I, I, I've, I've seen most of the classic episodes of original series and Next Gen, but, um, and I've seen most of the movies, but... Uh, that's about it. I haven't seen any show all the way through. I haven't seen a single episode of Deep Space Nine. But I did, like, raise to you, since you're, you know, the resident Trekkie in my peer group, that, you know, we should do a Star Trek movie at some point. And I suggested Wrath of Khan, and you're like, no, I want to do one of the less regarded ones. Yeah, you know, everyone can talk about, you know, Wrath of Khan over and over again. And everyone wants to talk about Star Trek IV, a.k.a. the one with the whales, over and over again. And a lot of people forget that there's, you know, one in the middle. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was a little curious as to why, like, you picked this one, because this was, this was your idea. Well, I picked it because I, I think that it's better than um, what a lot of people will give it credit for. I think that this is probably the best odd-numbered aka bad star trek movie it's not the best it's some parts of it especially since we just you know rewatched it before we started recording some parts of it are very slow this is a filler episode let's be honest and as a lot of other you know forms of media um consumers will say that the best way to say how good a show is or a story is is by the quality of its filler episodes this one's pretty good. There are a lot of, you know, really strong character moments, which we'll get into later. It's funny. I think that it also has, you know, William Shatner's best acting moment as Captain Kirk. Again, we'll talk about that later. But I guess, you know, before we get into this further, let's just, you know, summarize the movie for people who, you know, have never seen it or haven't watched it since it came out in 1984. So... 
At the end of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Spock dies of radiation poisoning after saving the ship. But before he goes into, you know, the ship's engines to die of radiation poison to save everybody, he puts his katra, his living soul, his essence, into the minds of his eternal frenemy, Dr. McCoy. And now everyone's back on Earth kind of catching up. Kirk's depressed and... Dr. McCoy starting to act really weird. That's because he's kind of juggling the fact that Spock's just sort of hanging out in his head. So Captain Kirk and company steal the Enterprise, go to the Genesis planet to retrieve Spock's regenerated remains, bring them back to Vulcan, and then put his brains and his body, not Spock's brain, different, different episode of Star Trek, put his soul and his body back together again. Uh, before we go on, I think we should explain for the people who are somehow listening to this without being too familiar with the Star Trek movies, or, you know, maybe they haven't seen it in a while, we should tell them what the Genesis planet even is. Oh, yeah, the Genesis planet. So, in uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, Captain Kirk's old girlfriend and his previously unknown illegitimate son have made a, basically a torpedo that if blasted into a lifeless planet will create life. It'll set up a chain reaction to start um, generating, you know, plants and vegetation. But what would happen if you shot the Genesis device into a planet that already had life? Well, it turns into a planet-destroying nuke. Uh, One thing we should also mention is that um, Star Trek II is one of the first films that have an after-credits scene and it is a very pregnant scene of Spock's coffin on the Genesis planet with the implication that they could resurrect him in the next movie if they really wanted to. Yeah, I mean, we should also mention that the Wrath of Khan was originally supposed to be like the grand finale for Star Trek. It, it really does kind of end like, oh, this is it. We could we could end Star Trek right here, right now. And we all know that that obviously didn't happen because... You know, five years after Wrath of Khan, we got Next Generation and Star Trek with some, you know, very pronounced lulls has never stopped. Uh, I should also uh, mention while I was uh, reading about the background of this film, Star Trek 3 was greenlit like three days after Wrath of Khan hit theaters. Well, yeah, because it was, it was really good because have you ever tried to watch Star Trek the motion picture? It's bad. Actually, I kind of like it, but we can get back to it. Ooh, I disagree with that. (laughs) Yeah, but we'll talk about that later. (laughs) I think conceptually there's nothing wrong with it, but let's move on. Yeah, anyway, we're not not talking about that one. Uh, (laughs) So, Leonard Nimoy had a pretty good time making Wrath of Khan, even though he was kind of like, hey, you know, I'm ready to be done with Star Trek. And so... He agreed to come back and also to direct uh, The Search for Spock, and he also directs The Voyage Home as well, which of course made Bill Shatner very jealous, but that's a whole other different topic. So he's barely in this, but his presence is felt pretty well. I think they did a pretty good job of, you know, Spock might be the title character and he's not in it very much. Yeah, it should be noticed that in the opening credits, like, everyone in the regular cast is mentioned, and all of the major supporting actors are, are, are mentioned, but uh, Leonard Nimoy is credited as the director, but not as an actor, because they just, it 
They just, they just want to tease the talk. Are they going to bring him back or not? I mean, they definitely are, but let's pretend that they're not. <laughs> we have to have some drama here. So we also can't not talk about how Christopher Lloyd is in this movie. He's the bad guy. <laughs> uh, yes, he's a Klingon who, uh, at the very beginning of the film, in the first act, basically buys information about Genesis. You know, since he's a Klingon, he notices that, you know, if it can wipe out a planet, that is like an ultimate nullifier-type destroyer weapon. Mm-hmm. And the Klingon Empire is still bad guys, so they want it. And, you know, I, I honestly, Krude, yeah, Krude, so I say his name, He's kind of forgettable on the scale of Star Trek villains. You know, he's not Khan. He's not the Borg Queen. He's not even Christopher Plummer's Klingon, who shows up a few, uh, you know, movies later. Yeah, I mean, most of my reactions to this is, holy shit, it's Doc Brown. I know, me too. I him to be like, Marty! <laughs> Actually, the first person I saw this movie with was a high school friend who was way more into Star Trek than I was. And I tried to start a dialogue with him over whether or not it counts as blackface when white actors are Klingons, and he did not want to have that argument. Ooh, I mean, we can also talk about how Ricardo Monteblan is a Mexican actor, and he was browned up in the 60s to play Khan, who's supposed to be Indian. At least they didn't, you know, put him in, in, in brown face for the Wrath of Khan. And we're just not going to really go into the, the reboot movies where Khan is played by Bendy Doodle Cucumber Pants. This is going to be a bit of a digression, but there's always this argument about fantasy races, whether it's Klingons or orcs, and whether or not it's a commentary about, you know ethnic minorities that exist in the real world. It's just that, um, yes, the Klingons are a fantasy race, but they were a fantasy race that was invented by a real-life human, and that real-life human was informed by their personal biases, and that will play into how the fantasy race is depicted. I'm not going to make any pronouncements about whether or not the Klingons are an indictment of the African-American community by the 1960s writers of Star Trek, However, I do think it's noteworthy to mention that after a certain period of time, they stopped casting white actors as Klingons because the blackface thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm saying you're wrong, and there are a lot of, you know, especially in Next Gen and in Deep Space Nine, where the Klingon is a guy in grease paint. They kind of tried to fix that in uh, Star Trek Discovery, even though we're you know, really not going to keep talking about uh, future Star Trek shows, but they have kind of made the Klingons sort of technicolor, like bluish, and they've cast actors of multiple uh, different racial backgrounds to play them, so they kind of are are fixing it a bit, because if you paint a woman blue, it's you, uh, very rarely, there aren't any blue people in, in real life. Yeah, uh, it's something that we keep getting back to in the various episodes, that whatever film we're talking about is a reflection of the time in which it was made. And I, I'm not I'm not knocking it or saying that it should be exterminated from the pu- uh, permanent record, but I do think it's fair to talk about this stuff when it comes up. Oh, of, of course. I, I agree. I think that if we'd be remiss if we didn't. So, well, that being said, let's get back to the plot. Yeah, let's get back to the plot. So, Crooch, he's angry, uh, you know, but I will say that compared to some other Klingons in Star Trek, he's 
a bit more reasonable. Like, he's a little bit, you know, he's willing to negotiate to a certain extent. He also didn't want his gunner to blow up the Grissom. And when he does blow up the Grissom, the ship that's, uh, the Federation ship that's currently orbiting around Genesis, he kills him because he blew up the ship and thus not giving him any prisoners. And he does seem pretty upset when Kirk tricks his men into going onto the Enterprise and then... The computer is speaking, my lord. Three, two, one, get out of there. Ah, yeah, he seems like genuinely upset. And maybe that's because he got, you know, outsmarted by a human, but also all of his men are dead because of him. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I think it should also be mentioned that while he consistently claims that he's acting on behalf of the Empire, he doesn't seem to be communicating with the Empire. Uh, no, I think he says that he's kind of supposed to be a rogue Klingon. He's just kind of doing whatever he wants. I don't even know if he's part of the Klingon military. I'm going to guess that, that he is. I mean, because Klingons, you know, they love honor. They love to call each other my lord. Kapla. I mean, success in Klingon. Yeah, he's assuming he knows what's best for the Empire, but he doesn't seem to be respecting the chain of command. Oh, yeah, no. And I, I think that, you know, in other Star Trek properties, there are a lot of varying opinions about what makes a Klingon a Klingon, and that kind of later leads to the decline of their culture in other series. But yeah, uh, getting back to Starfleet, Starfleet has decided that the Genesis planet is basically nobody should mess with it aside from the official research crew. They have grounded the Enterprise crew, which is thrown a kink into the fact that, you know, Bones has Spock's mind implanted in his brain and desperately needs to uh, retrieve Spock's corpse, which leads the, um, the crew to uh, stage a coup. Yeah, I think that... As I've said earlier, this movie is good because it has a lot of, like, good character moments, especially just all the scenes where McCoy is walking around and trying to, like, do what he usually does. But it's harder because he's got Spock's opinions and experiences coloring his interactions, especially the part where he's in the bar and he doesn't he understand that drinking alcohol is, you know, picking your poison. He's like, that's, that's not logical. And... Then when he gets arrested by the Starfleet security guy, he's like, all right, well, you know what? I'm not going to jail. I'm going to give you the Vulcan nerve pinch. And because he's a human, he can't do it. And it's just really funny. But I think DeForest Kelly makes it very endearing. Yeah, his impersonation of Leonard Nimoy is just delightful. Oh, oh yeah. He's, he's got the, the eyebrow up and he's like, oh, great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Starfleet wants to decommission the Enterprise and build a, you know, a sparkly new spaceship, which is part of one of the themes of this film, which we'll be getting back to. Kirk and Scotty and everybody else basically use subterfuge to sneak back onto the Enterprise and break out of the station and race back to Genesis to retrieve Fox Corpse, leaving behind poor Uhura, by yeah, the way. I, I think that, I think. Nichelle Nichols always kind of gets the short end of the stick when it comes to her a lot, but I will argue that the search for Spock breaks her character better than in the undiscovered country where they're just like, well, uh, she doesn't actually speak Klingon. Like, no, she knows, like, all the languages of the Federation. Don't, don't, don't give me that bullshit. Don't you shit on her like that. Really, she gets the moment where she kind of gets to, you know, very sassily throw, you know, Mr. Adventure in the closet with a phaser gun. 
Yeah, that is uh, one scene that I wanted to comment on, is that uh, Nichelle Nichols is sitting here with this young kid who's like, well, your career is rewinding down, so I guess it's okay for you to be on desk detail, but I want action and excitement. And I think that's like a very, very obvious metaphor and one of the first ones uh, about how, um, you know, the crew of the Enterprise, they're, uh, they're getting a little older, but they can still do it, damn it. Oh, hell yeah. And, you know, we, we gotta talk about Scotty. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the fancy new spaceship is the Excelsior, which later they would rightfully give to Sulu, but we're not quite there yet in the movie. So Scotty's not excited to be on the fancy new ship with the snobby asshole captain who has a swagger stick, for Christ's sake. And he just fucking hobbles it and leaves a sarcastic message to play when they try to go to transwarp. <laughs> Uh, yes, the Excelsior tries to uh, chase down the Enterprise as they are doing their illegal race to Genesis, and you know Scotty had sabotaged the ship beforehand in order to keep uh, to keep the pursuit from happening. And yeah, once again, that's one of those metaphors for like, oh, you're trying to decommission us, but we're still relevant, damn it. And, you know, Chekhov really doesn't get a lot to do in this movie, but at least, you know, Sulu gets the moment where he gets to beat up the giant guard, and George Takei, if, if they give him anything to do, he's gonna make it cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they uh, they get the Genesis, and the crew that is doing the scientific inquiry into Genesis includes uh, Kirk's son, as well as a random Vulcan woman. I'm sure you remember their names, because I don't. Yeah, that's uh, David Marcus, Kirk's son, and Savick, who was in the previous movie, play, in Wrath of Khan, played by Kirstie Alley. But for a variety of reasons, she did not come back. So Robin Curtis, who I think think did as best a job as she could she's a little bit stiff i think it it's hard when you're playing a vulcan because they're very you know reserved and unemotional and logical but they're not they're not robots they're not data so anyways they uh they come across spock's coffin and they find a you know a little baby spock in there but the spock is aging rapidly as well as the planet. It turns out that Genesis is a failed experiment, and while it does temporarily rejuvenate the dead planet, it ends up just going into just super drive in terms of entropy. Yeah, and technically, it wasn't even a dead planet. They made the planet out of the Mutara Nebula from the previous one. So even there, it, it's not a real planet. It just kind of crumbles apart like a bad cookie. Yes, however, uh, this also serves to make Baby Spock grow up fast, which is, you know, a very convenient plot point. Yeah, are we, are we going to talk about Ponfar now instead of saving it for the end? You desperately, <laughs> you desperately want to no, talk about Ponfar. No, Pond I Far. don't. I just, I, I feel like we have to talk about it. Well, uh, we'll, we'll touch upon it while we're doing the plot recap. Okay, All right, yeah. uh, Ponfar is uh, something that was... First mentioned in detail in this film, if I'm not mistaken. Nope, there is a whole episode of it called um, Amok Time, and it was in, I think, season two or three of Star Trek The Original Series, where every seven years, a Vulcan male, although technically in other shows and, and movies, they have the Vulcan ladies going through it too. But for right now, I'm just going to stick with this. Something that the Vulcan men have to go through, where they have to make or die, and it makes them all hormonal and crazy. And in the original series episode, they go to Spock's planet because they go to Vulcan because he's got a mate with like his betrothed to prank, but she doesn't want to 
be, you know, his wife anymore. She ditches him for her boyfriend, but Spock still got the pun far thing going on, so then he and Captain Kirk have a, you know, a homoerotic fight scene, and then uh, McCoy helps Kirk fake his death, so now Spock thinks that he, he killed Kirk, and it's very sad, and da 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 yeah, so... I haven't seen that episode, holy shit. <laughs> Okay, for uh, for the context of this movie, while it is very tastefully edited, Savic and um, teenage mind void Spock totally fuck. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's weird. I mean, they kind of make out Vulcan style, which is you know touchy touchy the fingers, and that's what that means. Yeah, this is yeah, this is why you got me to you know run this episode. <laughs> no, yeah, Vulcan kissing. Like every time. Fox's parents are together, like, this is she who is my wife, and then they touch hands. That's like the equivalent of giving your wife a cute little peck on the cheek or on the lips. Oh, that's actually very sweet. Yeah, I know. That's why in, you know, First Contact, when, um, you know, Cochran meets the Vulcan and they shake hands, the Vulcan's like, wow, humans are really friendly. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to that, that scene. I think that they had to talk about it because a chemical part of Vulcan and it's brought up in like literally every property that has a Vulcan in fan fiction, let's be honest. Uh, but it, it is a largely kept very ambiguous. In the fourth movie, The Voyage Home, there originally was going to be a uh, little plot point that revealed that Savick was pregnant via Spock, and that's why she doesn't go to Earth with everybody else, but it was cut. And in later canon, uh, Spock and Savick get married, like young, very young Jean-Luc Picard goes to their wedding. I, I don't know. I just think that it's kind of weird, but eh, it's the weirdest scene in the movie. And, and it's got, you know, all of your classic Star Trek odd moments like bad fight scenes, people in funny costumes, people shouting in made-up languages. But that's why we love Star Trek, because it's campy as fuck. All right, getting back to it. Yeah. Um... <laughs> All right, the Klingons take the scientific team hostage shortly before the Enterprise gets to the Genesis planet. And, you know, once Kirk gets there, he is uh, faced with a bit of of a dilemma because while the Enterprise, in theory, can outgun the Klingon warbird, it was about to be decommissioned and can't actually fight. Yeah, plus the Enterprise has to have, like, a couple hundred people as the crew complement, and there's, like, less than a half dozen people on there. And Scotty, you know, tried to automate everything. Yeah, taking a hur- not taking a hurl along uh, continues to be a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> so anyways, the Enterprise gets crippled by the Klingon Warbird, and in order to uh, give gravity to the seriousness of demands for the Genesis tech, for the glory of the Klingon Empire... The Klingons decide to kill one of the hostages in order to underline how serious they are. Yeah, and it very sadly ends up being David, uh, Captain Kirk's son, who he only really recently connected to in the previous movie. And I will argue that it has probably the most pathos in it. I, in my opinion, the 
best piece of acting from Bill Shatner as Captain Kirk. Uh, Shatner actually agrees with you. I found that out. Oh, really? I mean, I, I agree. And I, apparently, the only thing I knew is that when he stumbles and misses the chair and, and falls on the floor, um, that was an accident. And then he and Leonard Nimoy agreed that um, to put it in. And also, David ended up not being killed by chance. They were they, That Klingon was definitely going to kill Savick, and then David just sort of jumped in front of him. Yeah, so he gets kind of a, a, a noble sacrifice, but it's still very tragic, and unlike a lot of other, like, child death in, in Star Trek, David's death does have continuing ramifications to the character of Kirk, why uh, a few movies later, he's racist against Klingons, and why he doesn't want to help the Klingons when and they're, they blow up their own planet in um, the last, well, the last original series cast movie. Yeah, uh, this uh, then leads to um, Kirk feigning surrender of the Enterprise, inviting the, uh, the the Klingon Warbird crew to beam aboard, and then immediately sets the ship to self-destruct, where he and the crew then beam down to Genesis. The Klingons board the Enterprise, just as it's about to blow up, as uh, Rachel uh, mentioned earlier. Yeah, kaboom! And... I think the the death of the Enterprise is, you know, it's emotional. It, it's sad. No, it, the, the old girl has been through a lot and, you know, they weren't going to fix her anymore. So at least she gets to go down in, in a blaze of glory, saving her crew one more time. And I think that here in The Search for Spock, they do the destruction of the Enterprise a lot more emotionally and, and given the proper weight to it than Star Trek Beyond did the third reboot movie, which I actually loved Beyond, and I think that had a good story to it, but it didn't quite feel the same amount of weight to it. Yeah, uh, Kirk then sends up a message to Captain Christopher Lloyd saying that he has the Genesis tech on the planet, throwing any biting aside about how the Enterprise accidentally blew up by accident. I didn't do that on purpose. This uh, this leads Christopher Lloyd to beam down, and then a fight breaks out, which is very much a Star Trek fight. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have, you know, the original series fight music, but boy, does it have the choreography. Yeah, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the two-handed punches and all yeah, that. Yeah, my favorite part at the end is when Kirk's like, he's like kicking Crudge into the pit, and he's like, I have had enough of you! <laughs> Which, um... I had seen the uh, the first South Park movie years before this, and it was like, oh, so the scene where Satan is throwing Sa- Saddam Hussein back into hell is a reference to this. I'm not surprised. I mean, South Park likes to crib a lot of things from Star Trek, especially, you know, Picard's, no, from First Contact, they give it to Randy. I don't know. I'm- I mean, yeah, the, <laughs> Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I'm assuming they, they they think First Contact is the best Star Trek movie, which, I mean, it's actually my personal favorite, too. But it, It's definitely up there. Um, so is this a good point to talk about the Star Trek movie curves? No, let, let's finish the plot recap All right, yeah, first. the plot. Okay. Yeah, we, we haven't even gotten to Spock's resurrection yet. I oh, mean, yeah, you're there's right. the, uh, oh, I mean, the film has been, the film's climax has happened. The bad guy's dead. They mm-hmm. escape from Genesis just as it blows up, as you were want to do in dramatic action movies. Mm-hmm. But we get a very extended epilogue where they travel back to Vulcan. Yeah. So we have, you know, there's always... In anything related to Vulcan, there's the Vulcan High Priestess. And, you know, she says that they can take Spock's Katra from McCoy and put it back in Spock. They're up on the holiest site for Vulcans, Mount Leia. 
There's a whole ceremony, lots of costumes and gongs. Yeah, it's it, a pageant. <laughs> it, 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 it feels like a completely unrelated movie in certain passages. Like, did we accidentally switch over to Dune or something? <laughs> I, now, I've seen your things. I've never seen Dune. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Spock yeah. is resurrected. Uh, everybody is thrilled to see him. There's a very pointed inversion of the uh, famous scene from Wrath of Khan where Kirk goes, the needs of the one out ne- outweigh the needs of the many. Yeah, and, um, you know, Spock's brain's a little scrambled, but at least it ends on the note that he recognizes his friends and he's going to recover. And there's a little title card that says, Then the adventure continues. Because they're still relevant. Yeah, I mean, they all... Yeah, I, I, I used to be able to tell you how many Star Trek movies and TV shows that were off the top of my head, but there are a lot more these days, which is a good thing, especially if you love Star Trek. Okay, uh, so uh, with the plot out of the way, we can start talking about the themes in greater detail. Yeah, um, I guess if there's a theme to this, it's definitely friendship and the way that people will keep doing anything that they need to do for their friends. Um, Nimoy said that that was, that was his impression of what the central theme of the film was. Oh, indeed. And we got to talk about just a scene where McCoy talks to the unconscious Spock on the bird of prey on their way to Vulcan. And, and I always, I've always thought that that's a very good scene. Like, McCoy has the vulnerable moment in front of Spock, who is, you know, his eternal beloved best frenemy. Uh, yeah, DeForest Kelly gets so many good moments in this film. Oh, yeah, he really does. And and, and you can tell, and I know that um, Leonard Nimoy was always very fond of DeForest Kelly, especially apparently when he saw, God, what's, who's the guy that plays him in the, the reboot movies? His name escapes me. Uh, Carl Urban. Carl Urban in costume as Dr. McCoy. Nimoy started crying because it just reminded him of his old friend so much. One thing uh, that I wanted to point out about this film is that it was definitely directed by an actor. You know more about this kind of stuff than I do, so... Well, I mean, (laughs) one thing that um, uh, leapt out at me was just how much the focus was on the facial acting. Leonard Nimoy is, uh, as a director, really focices on, you know, uh, gesticulations of the actors and and, and facial expressions, and he loves extreme close-ups. I mean, that whole scene where uh, Sarek was uh, interacting with Kirk under the assumption that Spock had put his memories into Kirk's brain rather than Bones's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is almost nothing but extreme close-ups of eyes and lips as they are subtly changing as uh, more information is re- uh, revealed to each character and how they're reacting to it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Looking under it through like that perspective, it is that that is all over search for Spock. Oh yeah, just thinking about it again. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah uh, one thing that uh, wasn't pointed out by anybody who worked on the film, but is frequently brought up by fans of the franchise, is the number of Christian allegories in this film. I mean, any movie that involves a resurrection is going to bring up a Jesus comparison from somebody. Yeah, well, at least nobody got stabbed in the hands and the feet. <laughs> but yeah, there there is an undercurrent of uh, self-sacrifice that then leads to resurrection, and where, uh, while Jesus isn't unique in that perspective, you know, there's Osiris and various other, um, the god who, yeah, <laughs> the god who died. 
as I pointed out in my Edge of the Spider-Verse uh, podcast. You can you can find that in Star Trek if you're looking for it. I, I, I wanted to like point out some of the uh, individual performances besides that. Uh, one thing I pointed out uh, uh, that I uh, that I stumbled across is why Leonard Nimoy picked Christopher Lloyd. Oh, why did he pick him? He actually loved Lloyd's performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it, despite the fact that, um, you know, this isn't considered one of the great Star Trek villains, it's uh, it's still it's still a scenery-chewing performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be in a Star Trek movie and you're the bad guy, you've got to stand out. Particularly if you're a Klingon. But I, I think it says something about uh, Christopher Lloyd's just career as a character actor that Star Trek Three is like maybe the fourth or fifth most noteworthy thing he did. Yeah. I know everyone's like, oh, yeah, he was in Star Trek. Honestly, I forget that he's the bad guy in this all the time. Until the very second you hear that voice. Marty, we have to go to the Genesis planet. <laughs> One thing I also wanted to mention was the music. Uh, James Warner. Yeah. have a good soundtrack. Basically him doing Wrath of Khan again, sometimes note for note. Oh, for sure. However, he did write a new Klingon theme, which um, is pretty unique among Star Trek music for its atonality, I think. It's not a, like a conventional uh, operatic film score type of thing, which is, which is odd because traditionally Star Trek is very operatic. It's a space opera. Mm-hmm. I think James Horner kind of gets the short shrifts uh, sometimes. Uh, often Jerry Goldsmith is considered the definitive Trek composer, which, I mean, I'm on board with that. Goldsmith is a genius. Well, the reason why Goldsmith kind of took over is because after a certain point, they couldn't afford James Horner anymore. His popularity shot right up. Like, Wrath of Khan was one of the first, like, bigger movies. I mean, I, I was looking through his uh, through his career, and yeah, he, he's not like he's not as big as uh, you know your your Hans Zimmer or your Bernard Herrmann or um, or your John Williams. But uh, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of big movies. He did Titanic. Yeah, uh, fortunately, he had to die in that. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't even notice. Uh, I, I looked up for this episode, and he he passed away in 2015. I was like, oh. Any other rules you think that we should talk about? Well, I mean, we touched upon a lot of them while we were doing the plot recap. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, one interesting bit of trivia I, I stumbled across was uh, apparently um, Shatner had uh, lost a bit of weight for uh, Star Trek <laughs> Two, but uh, but 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 he slipped and. <laughs> They had to keep making progressively bigger shirts to try to hide it. Oh, Bill. <laughs> yeah, oh, gosh. I, 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 um, a few years ago, for the 35th anniversary of Wrath of Khan, I got tickets to see it um, on the big screen. And before the movie, had an interview with William Shatner. And he talked about putting out a fire on the set of Wrath of Khan. But then... The interview pointed that it was actually the search for Spock where William Shatner was trying to put out a fire himself because he had to go and go work on the TV show he was on instead. And he's like, I can't be late. I, I gotta leave. I, I gotta put out the fire so I can go to my other job. I think one other thing we should touch upon is uh, the special effects for this movie, which are very 80s, which I... Yeah, I know. 
I, I find them charming in that uh, 80s special effects way, but uh, apparently at the time, uh, they had a mixed reception. Yeah, I mean, Wrath of Khan was also made on a shoestring budget, but at least for that, that you had the, the, the set as for the ship. Like, the Enterprise and the Reliant Bridges were the same. They just changed up some things to switch between the two of them. So it's very limited. But here, you actually have to go to a planet, and it has to look like a place, and you can tell that, all right, this is half, you know, kind of outdoors. It's a sound stage. Yeah, that cactus is definitely made of foam. <laughs> I mean, I'm a big sucker for 80s lightning. Oh, yeah, especially, especially blue lightning. <laughs> there's orange lightning, and uh, there's yellow lightning there's in this. There's a lot of light in this movie. Yeah, and, you know, the bit where the, uh, where the Klingon is uh, disintegrated for acting with uh, outside of orange. Or, uh, orders and he just he just turns into this yellow aura before he disintegrates into nothingness. Yeah. I mean that 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 just that just gets a very special like particular movie nerd bone in my body. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think apparently they had problems with some of the um, like rock motion in the later scenes on Genesis. I mean, you, you can't tell, but, you know, this movie, it is very, very limited. But at least there's, you know, enough strong character moments and it does, you know, continue the Star Trek story that, you know, you can kind of just ignore it, I guess. You will be continually reminded that this is a film that came out in 1984, but I, 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 I'm, willing to, I'm willing to let it slide some, somewhat more than uh, some of the hardcore Trek fans, which I think uh, gives us an opportunity to seg into the Star Trek curse, which you wanted to talk about. Yeah, um, so if you don't know, there is the Star Trek movie curse, which is that even-numbered Star Treks are good and odd numbers are bad. I think that it's true enough that there's some precedence to this, but half the time, it's bunk. I mean, motion picture, I'm, I'm sorry, Ryan, bad. Search for Spock, it's not as good as the two movies that are surrounded. The Final Frontier, that movie is bad. I mean, at least we have a great scene where Uhura does a fan dance and Captain Kirk going, Why? What is God? He needs a starship. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not good. And well, why does God need a starship? Is in five, not six? It is in five. The, uh, yeah, yeah, Final it's in five. Fr- uh, the fan dance is in six, isn't it? No, it's in five. Oh, I could have sworn it was in nope. six. <laughs> no, six is a serious movie. It's it's the Manchurian Candidate, but Star Trek. You gotta rewatch all of these now. <laughs> yeah, and I know you said you really want to go into you know talking about uh, next gen movies, but Generations is is odd. It's okay. It's not that great. I have never seen Generations. It, it's it's eh. They kill Captain Kirk by dropping a bridge on him. So, not that great. First Contact, even number, amazing. Star Trek Insurrection, flaming dumpster fire. Really? Um, I heard that it was okay, but it's just basically a really long episode. It's bad. Okay, I haven't Uh, seen it either. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so my memory's a little foggy, but I didn't like it, you know, back then. And then there's Nemesis, which is even numbered, but it's okay. I actually like Nemesis, I, which I, I believe is an unpopular opinion. I think that it's okay. I 
I don't want to go into what's going on in Star Trek Picard, but I think that people will think more fondly of it because Star Trek Picard kind of does some damage control with it. Um, that was enough to kind of kill off the cinematic Star Trek universe. And then Enterprise ended on an absolutely shitty episode that is widely considered to be non-canon. And then you have the reboot movies. I mostly like the reboot movies, oh, yeah, same. but they, they, you know, they they don't feel like Star Trek. I can get why Trekkies hate them. Yeah, I honestly really like the reboot movies. I think that some Trekkies are incredibly unfair to it and don't like their Star Treks to have conflict in them at all. But Dark Trek 2009, odd numbered, it's good. Into Darkness, I like it more than it probably deserves, but it's not a great movie. Even though I did enjoy it when it came out, and I will watch it. You know, I've watched it many a times. It's the even numbered, but then Beyond, which was very good, odd numbered. I think Beyond is the best of the oh. uh, the reboot movies. Oh, for sure. I think they finally, as you said before we started recording this, Beyond, they kind of got what they were going for by then. And unfortunately, probably for maybe forever, at least for right now, um, it's probably going to be the last cinematic Star Trek movie, even though Star Trek TV shows right now are in a bit of a renaissance with two about to be possibly three to four more series in the work. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pro- Beyond is probably going to be the last one with that cast, which is a shame because the cast has always been better than those movies, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. And I did think probably one of the things that would be hard um, to continue on with the movies is with the death of Anton Yelchin. What would they do with Chekhov? I, I feel like they would probably, you know, kindly and gently write him out. Okay, but this is a Search for Spock yes, podcast. Yes, but, you know, it wouldn't be a Ryan and Rachel episode without us going on a bajillion tangents. At least you only talked about Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Like Airplane. One note that I definitely want to do um, touch upon is that Search for Spock is overall still considered one of the lesser ones, especially by the old heads. And yeah, why do you think that is? Because we both think that it's pretty good. You know, I think that um, also, I think because it is very slow. Like the first good half hour of the movie is just kind of recapping the last one a little bit. This film came out decades before streaming, and it was working under the assumption that not everyone who is seeing this film has seen Wrath of Khan, and even if they have, it might have been a while, so they have to just sort of gently tell you, as opposed to, say, the Marvel movies, where they know that you could binge-watch everything on Netflix or Disney+, Plus or in the theaters in one of those bladder-busting marathon sessions uh, (laughs) before uh, before you sit down to watch this one. And uh, they sort of take advantage of that. But in the 80s, you couldn't do that. And you just sort of had to feed all of the relevant info of Wrath of Khan to anybody watching uh, Search for Spock before he could get going. And relevant info is underlined because Search for Spock, despite the fact that it opens with a recap of the ending of Wrath of Khan, does not mention Khan by name. Yeah, he's not mentioned at all. And which is kind of funny because I would argue that the character of Khan is the albatross around the neck for Star Trek to a certain degree because he's the best villain. I mean, at least cinematically, he's the best villain. There are some characters in the TV shows that you could argue are the best TV villains. I think if you consider the Borg to be one character, which you can because the Borg, they're the best Star Trek villain. Yeah, but then also you didn't watch Deep Space Nine, so then there's, you know, Gold Ducat, the Cardassian asshole fascist guy who has been a bit of a 
story arc, despite, you know, being a fascist asshole. It's actually, why do I think that this one isn't quite as well regarded? There really isn't any, but other than stealing the Enterprise and the few shots of the Enterprise blowing up, there really isn't a memorable action scene. Spock, who is always going to be the face of the franchise, no matter what William Shatner has to say, he's not in it that much. Even if it is called The Search for Spock. So people are probably like, I don't really have Spock in it. And arguably, if you just put on Wrath of Khan and then you just decided to skip to um, the voyage home, just knowing that, oh yeah, they got Spock, they, they popped the Katra back in and he's recovering, you could do it without missing anything. That sort of sets up what I wanted to talk about, is that uh, a lot of the people who express disappointment in Search for Spock are significantly older than us. They're, they're baby boomers or they're older Gen X who um, were of age while these movies were new. And uh, Spock's death in Wrath of Khan is considered one of the most poignant moments in the franchise. And resurrecting him in Search for Spock is often seen as a bit of a cop-out. Yeah, my dad was like, old hat frecky i will admit my dad does actually really like the reboot movies too and there's a picture of him excitedly holding up his brand new recently purchased vhs of the voyage home which he looks like a giant 80s nerd in my dad actually really likes the search for spot when i when i've read a bunch of you know then contemporary reviews of the film most of them were fairly positive and once again, the uh, the after credit scene in Wrath of Khan gave them a big old back door to uh, let it in. I mean, the screenwriter for Search for Spock uh, said that uh, it wasn't a big deal to write this film because it basically wrote itself. Because based on the ending of Wrath of Khan, you could sort of figure out what the third one was going to be about. Yeah. So, and, and I think that, again, it just suffers because it's between two of the best and most memorable Star Trek movies and that it's just it's all right but I will argue that of all of the quote-unquote bad Star Trek movies it is the best yeah even people who don't like Search for Spock seem to think that uh it's the best of the lesser ones yeah I mean I know it's definitely one of my comfort Star Trek movies just to put it on it's not gonna like not scary it's not gonna stress me out <laughs> so I think one of the reasons that I'm a, a bit gentler to it than the other ones is that uh it reminds me of the the study I read about how um, film spoilers actually enhance someone's uh, opinion of the film. If you have the ending blown to you, you're more inclined to look at how the film is constructed. And unlike, you know, the baby boomers and the uh, older Gen X people who, you know, had to wait a year or so between uh, between installments, I watched this for the first time on a battered VHS tape decades <laughs> after it came out. I both knew that Spock died and that Spock was resurrected, and so none of that meant anything for me, and I was just sort of approaching the film on its own terms, knowing exactly what it was going to give me, and I, I think that did affect my perception of it. The first time I actually watched The Search for Spock was because I was like, I'm just gonna like watch my Star Trek shows. I mean, when I was like 14, that was when I was really getting back into Star Trek. I watched The Wrath of Khan, and then I actually skipped The Search for Spock, watched The Voyage Home, and then I watched The Search for Spock. And that's when I realized, man, I, I shouldn't have done that. I should have watched it in between the two of them, because even if it is kind of, you know, 
like I said earlier, a filler episode, it's still a good one. It still feels necessary, at least to me. I saw Search for Spock before I saw Wrath of Khan. Weird. Yeah, that is weird. <laughs> yeah, that, that really is a little weird. I mean, and that's the thing with Star Trek is that everyone who's ever watched any Star Trek has their story of what they watched first, how much they have seen. I will say that people who say they're Trekkies, but I would say most of them have not watched every single episode or every single movie. I mean, I've seen all of, you know, TOS, all of Enterprise, all of Discovery, Picard, most of Next Gen, but most of my childhood memories of watching Deep Space Nine and Voyager are just kind of fuzzy. There's a certain things that certain people like people hate certain things about star trek everyone loves to bicker just you know get over it <laughs> i'm wearing star wars pajama pants right now so i'm just i'm just a filthy heathen throughout this whole ordeal yeah i was gonna make a comment about it but i i just i decided not to i mean i'm wearing i'm wearing what are they, i'm gonna talk about is i'm wearing a hellraiser shirt i got pinhead on right now and funnily enough, the search for Spock structurally reminded me of Hell of Hellbound Hellraiser 2 because, like, you know, search for Spock, the first half hour of Hellraiser 2 is just exposition of the previous movie, and then it picks up at the end and is a good movie on its own legs. The only sequel I consider canon. I have only ever seen the first Hellraiser, so I'll take your word for it. It has more scenes with, with Pinhead in it, because they were like, he, he's the moneymaker. <laughs> Fuck everyone else. <laughs> All right, well, um, I've run out of Star Trek things to say. Um, uh, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Live long and prosper. That's as good as <laughs> note as any. Uh, right. Good night, everybody. Yeah, See you next time. <laughs>